Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special on Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, the newest Harry Potter movie. So I'm here with Dan Coyce, a Slate contributor and also editor of... Vulture, New York Magazine's arts and culture blog. So, Dan, you are my go-to spoiler special guy for any kind of franchise, serial, geeked-out nerd movie, (laughs) especially if it involves huge piles of comic books and or giant novels. So I've summoned you here to discuss Harry Potter. There's not that much to spoil in a movie that pretty much everybody who sees the movie will probably have read the book, but is there any particular, before we start, big giveaway you want to talk about or scene you want to discuss? I mean, I think what will be of interest probably to most people who are listening to a spoiler special on this will be what they left out. Because, as I point out in my review, this is the um, the longest Harry Potter book and the shortest Harry Potter movie. So right. there's going to be a lot of stuff that had to fall by the wayside. Right. And, and there are sort of two ways to watch a movie like this. And my wife and I, after the movie, got into a, a quite an argument about it on the subway. Because had you both read the book? We had both read and both loved the book. We both had read the book several times. So she's a nerd, too. She's a nerd, too. That's correct. She was extremely dissatisfied by the movie in the same way that she's been dissatisfied by every Harry Potter movie because she can't get rid of the platonic ideal of a Harry Potter movie in her head, which would be 15 to 16 hours long. And would just be every scene from the book right. laid out end to end, and she would be completely happy with that. And I, I admit I would like to see that as well. I've come to the determination that the only way you can watch these movies and not be frustrated if you're a Harry Potter fan is to just be happy with what they get right and hope that what they get wrong doesn't Well, they are unusually faithful translations of novel to film, right, compared to, to most translations. Yes, well, and unusually long movies. They are. And, I mean, unusually faithful because J.K. Rowling, of all authors in the world, has the most power and the most money. And the most control over her work. And so she has a hand in these screenplays and movies from beginning to end. What does she get credited as? Because she wasn't one of the writers or, or co-writers. Is she like a story consultant or something like that? I don't even know if she has an official credit on the movie, but part of the movie deal that they made with Warner Brothers gives her script approval. Right. Uh, maybe it's somewhere deep in the credits that says J.K. Rowling, God. But she's she's there. She's behind the scenes right. operating something. The, the one thing that's not in the in the movie that many fans might miss deals with a sort of a character note that I think a lot of reviewers who maybe weren't as familiar with the books might have had a problem with, (laughs) Um. which is this notion of why it is that... Um, Sirius Black, Harry's godfather, who, who, as many people know, and who those of you don't know, dies at the end of this book. And this Played movie. by Gary Oldman. Played by Gary Oldman. Why Harry feels so much culpability in his death. Not just because Harry uh, makes a mistake and, and is fooled by Voldemort in such a way that Sirius then comes to his rescue along with others and is killed. But in the book, there's, there's a long and interesting subplot that I think is, is one of the few things that I really missed in the movie about Sirius's frustration about his inability to do anything to help the order of the because Phoenix, he has to, to be in hiding good, because he has to be in hiding and on top of that his taunting at the hand of professor snape alan rickman's character who spends almost the entire book needling sirius black about how impotent he is in the fight how he does nothing to help and because the two have a long-standing hatred between them and i actually have a question about snape for you later but go ahead and finish your work. and um and one of the things that that, uh, that i missed in the movie was this is one of the many ways that snape's character is deepened in the book and And one of the many ways that he's brought into conflict with Harry in the book is Harry feeling as though Snape goaded Sirius into action in some way, that Sirius
Sirius went to rescue Harry for at least in part because he was so sick of Snape making fun of him for not doing anything. And given how important the goodness or badness of Snape seems to become as the series goes along, I feel like I would have very much have liked to have seen those scenes in the movie, that conflict played out. To well, but how are you so. saying that makes Harry respons- more responsible for Sirius Black's death? Well, it's a twofold thing. Harry does feel responsible and culpable because he makes a mistake, but he also feels as though he should have seen what Snape was doing and been more clear with Sirius and talked him down and realized that Sirius would come to his aid because of the things that Snape had done. He feels like, in the book, he feels like he knows what Severus Snape is doing to Sirius Black, and he can see it, but Sirius can't, and he should therefore have done right, something about right. it. Right, Here's the Snape question I was going to ask you. Is the brief flashback that we get in the movie of Snape being tormented by Harry's father at Hogwarts, back in their days at Hogwarts, it's sort of this strange flashback in which Harry starts to question his idealization of his, his dead father. Um, is that better developed in the book, and, and yes. is that something you missed from the movie? Because I was to me that seemed like absolutely crucial. I mean, in a movie about an, a young boy coming of age and his struggle with good and evil within during adolescence, and all the things that this movie is about, you know, suddenly having your father fall from his fantasy pedestal is a really big deal. It's a huge deal in the book, and it's played very lightly in the movie, mostly just because of a lack of time. I mean, it's an entire chapter in the book is just set within that flashback, and we see Harry's father and young Sirius Black and young Professor Lupin all as a as a gang of friends. We see them tormenting young Snape for no reason really other than that they are cool and he is not cool. And it does deeply trouble Harry. It, it's, it is a huge thing for him to get over. And it's shortened in the movie, for, for those who are listening to this, to a maybe 10 to 15 second instant flashback where we just get flashes of the torment that Snape went through as a child. And Harry's response to it is not really dealt with particularly at all. It's something I'd love to see explored in, in the next movie a little bit more on screen because Alan Rickman is just so awesome as, as Severus Snape. I think he actually, among the huge piles of great British actors in that make up the faculty and staff of Hogwarts, I think Alan Rickman is probably the single most amazing in that role. He just gives such a sense that there's there's a ton going on behind the scenes that you just want a whole separate movie about Severus Snape. Right, well, and, and given that all of these Oscar winners and uh, Olivier Award-winning British actors and actresses that populate the movie often only have one or two lines. It's true that that Alan Rickman has the most to play with, really, and does the best with his role. But it's fun to see some of these scenes in which these actors face off. Those who are aficionados of great British acting will laugh at one point in the movie when you see that finally Emma Thompson... Dame Maggie Smith and Imelda Staunton face off in a scene, and it's a scene about a drunken teacher getting thrown out of a school for wizards. Yeah, it's it's hardly, it's not, it's not Lorca, it's not Shakespeare. (laughs) It's a great illustration of what the Harry Potter phenomenon must mean to to Brits as a cultural phenomenon, not just as a as a best selling best selling children's book. That all of these great actors are are dying to play these small parts, and that they take them very seriously and really bring a lot to the. Well, they take them very seriously and really bring a lot. But let's also be blunt: the Harry Potter franchise is funding probably the next twenty years of independent theater in Britain <laughs> because all these great actors are getting big Warner Brothers paychecks right. and can do whatever they want. And they're the, adding the the they're year. adding more every time. Every yeah. time there's some new actor of incredible stature in some tiny little walk-on role. Right, this year it's Imelda Staunton, who's actually quite good as Dolores Umbridge, the horrible new headmaster of Hogwarts, and also um, Bellatrix Lestrange, who is played by Helena Bottom Carter, who seems in this movie to have never read the books and to have been given only the note, you're playing a witch. (laughs) 
And to which she said, oh, I can play that. And so her whole performance is, is sort of sharp teeth and cackling. You're right. She's more like the um, the Mad Woman in the Attic from from Jane Eyre. That's yes. sort of the part she's playing. I assume that there that that's just a teaser for her to become a bigger presence in the next book and movie. She does become a bigger presence as time goes on, although although not a substantially bigger presence. She's actually probably at her peak in the book world in the book from which this movie is based. That makes me realize that they really did fast forward through yes. a lot. Well, let's talk. Okay, as long as we're talking spoilers, let's talk about the climactic battle of this movie. And you know, this this question that I've actually seen critics come down on different sides on since the movie came out about whether or not it's interesting to watch two magicians battle it out as we do at the end of this this movie between Dumbledore and and Lord Voldemort. There's a big magic battle and a lot of great special effects. But to me, there's something fundamentally dull about watching a magic fight. Is that is that so wrong? Well, no, I don't think it's necessarily so wrong. It's it, it is certainly something that often can feel a lot more real and legitimate on paper than it does on film, though I will say these spells that, are so verbal, right? I mean, right. they're sort of verbal and internal. And the idea the idea in the scene as well in the Room of Requirements where Harry Potter is training his, his army of young wizards is that it's all internal. Learning to do magic is focusing. It's, it's like the force or yoga. It's sort of like gathering all your magic chops together in your brain somehow and, and sending them into your wand. And that's something that on paper might be beautiful to read, a kind of stream of consciousness of the magician. But in a movie, it just looks like a lot of people sort of frowning at their wands. Right, I mean, it just looks around. like a bunch of constipated kids in a room. But uh, the fight between Voldemort and Dumbledore is meant in, in, the, in the spirit of the movie, I think, to represent more or less magic at its peak, the magical world at, at the peak of its power. These are probably the two most powerful wizards in the Harry Potter universe. And their spells are of a sort of a scale and scope far beyond anything that Harry has ever learned. I mean, Voldemort is sending gigantic flaming snakes at Dumbledore, and Dumbledore is sending sheets of water at Voldemort. And and it is, I mean, I will give the, the director, David Yates, a lot of credit that the scene is pretty exciting and is gorgeous to look at. But it is very hard in a fight like that to ever get a real sense of danger to any of the participants in the way that you would with a fist fight in a movie or even a gunfight or a sword fight or something like that. And in fact, the most dangerous or sort of the, the grittiest and most interesting part of that battle comes at the end when Voldemort possesses Harry. And it's quite a creepy scene in the movie, I think actually done maybe better than it is in the book, because it ties into a theme of the entire movie, which is Harry's coming to realize that it is that this is not a fight that he can win alone that his friends and and the others that fight with him are necessary for him to achieve what he wants to achieve and that the power that he and his friends have over Voldemort as he says in the movie is that we have something to fight for and is very well handled in the movie I, I think perhaps better in fact than it is in the book and that that isn't two wizards pointing wands at each other from 50 feet away and shouting No, not at all. Things. Possession is a very cinematic right. process by its nature. I mean, Harry actually changes his appearance and starts to get a sort of creepy Voldemort face. And I, I love the way that scene resolves in that, in that, isn't that the moment that Sirius Black comes over to him and tells him that he has the choice to be good or bad? Or is Sirius already dead? At that well, point? Sirius is already remember. dead at that point. But yes, that, that ties into that moment earlier in the movie in which Sirius does tell him that it, it, you know, and it's sort of a classic movie message that I believe one also in Lord of the Rings, potentially cribbed in the screenplay from Lord of the Rings, that it is our choices to do good or evil to make us who we are, not how we are born or our similarities to others. I guess, I mean, yeah, it's it's, it's a pretty familiar line from movies, but it, it works so well with the, the coming-of-age story in this movie, you know, especially the fact that we've just seen Harry grow up for so long, you know, like the idea that he would be struggling with evil, that sweet little 10-year-old Harry would be... Wh- whom we see in flashbacks here and there in the movie, and they're 
the movie actually is filled with little momentary flashbacks from several of the other movies, including shots of Harry and his friends from the very first movie, which I thought was a nice touch because it does remind us that we have those of us who have watched the movies and loved the movies, or at least appreciated them, have grown up with these kids and watched them grow up and watch their performances and deepen as well as 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 the movies have deepened well and it's one thing that you know that, that the movies can bring the, the books can't i mean for all the you know the richness and density that a novel has that a, that a movie can't have you can't see someone physically age you know on the page right. the way you can in a series of movies i mean it almost made me think of that michael apted series you know the seven up movies where it's just somehow incredible to see someone's face change and their body change and their voice change over the years and that's sort of seems where we are with with rupert and right. uh and Emma and, right. and Daniel. Well, 35 years from now, when J.K. Rowling writes the, the middle-aged Harry Potter uh, midlife crisis novel, we can have Apted direct it. <laughs> right. Harry Potter at rest, kind right. of John Uptake. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about um, a couple of the other actors who did nice jobs in this movie. One person who I think a lot of Harry Potter fans were worried about the casting of was um, Ivana Lynch who is the little girl who was cast as Luna Lovegood. People were worried because Ivana Lynch is a non-professional. Well, most of the kids are non-professionals, but also I think a lot of people were worried because Luna Lovegood is an extremely quirky and weird character and one who's beloved, I think, by a lot of fans for that quirkiness. And early promotional shots of Ivana Lynch, the actress who's playing her, seem to appear to be just a fairly normal blonde girl who didn't seem particularly quirky at all. But the good news for fans of the books is that Ivana Lynch is maybe the weirdest girl in Britain. Um, <laughs> I don't think she even looks particularly normal. The minute I saw her, I thought she was nuts. I was actually waiting, not having read the book, for her character to turn evil. I mean, albino-looking people are always evil in the movies. You can't be that free of pigment and not be evil. But no, she's a, she turns out to be this this quirky, sweet, weird... I, I loved her character. Absolutely great. And I mean, who hasn't gone to high school with someone like that? She's right. like the girl in drama club or something. She is. She is. I mean, she's, in fact, she's probably the girl who's got stuck on stage crew. Interestingly, she's maybe the only character in the movie who is given more to do in the movie than she has to do in the book. Uh, In the book, she is an interesting, sweet character who many people like quite a bit, but she's given a a bunch of tasks and scenes in the movie that she doesn't have in the book. Very nice scenes with Harry where they forge a connection that isn't necessarily quite there in the book. And Ivana Lynch plays them so well, and she's so deeply weird a girl, it seems, or at least giving such a fantastic performance, that the scenes play really well. I've got to look for an interview clip with that actress to see if she really talks in that sort of fruity, overemphasized voice in in real life. Well, I mean, the story of her, as we were talking about before we started taping, it makes it easy to conflate the actress and the character because she showed up for an open casting call for the Harry Potter movies, having said to her parents after she read this book, oh, well, I'm Luna Lovegood. And this is an incredible story. There were 15,000 non-professional British girls who sent in tapes. It was eventually narrowed down to, I think, 29 people, mm-hmm. and they picked her from that 29. So, you know, to me, it was just, it's, it's like Jennifer Hudson in Dreamgirls. It's just the greatest populist fantasy for Harry Potter fans. And right. it's going to get so many bad audition tapes out there, but right. God bless them. All right. Well, I think we should wrap up. We could talk all day about Harry Potter, but thanks a lot for joining me for this spoiler special. Thanks a lot. And be sure to join us for our spoiler book club of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, which we will be running starting July 23rd, the Monday after the book publishes. Meaning that you're going to cram the book over the weekend with the other club members? That's correct. I have even sent my daughter away to be with her grandparents for ease of reading. (laughs) Banish the child so you can read the children's book. Correct. (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot for joining us, Dan. Thanks. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. 
Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.